0: Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of my Quest for the Best, where we meet business, thought, and community leaders to discuss issues relevant to entrepreneurial growth. Joining me today is Jonathan Raymond. Jonathan is owner of Refound, an online training startup that offers good authority training, programs for owners, executives, and managers. He's the author of Good Authority, How to Become the Leader Your Team is Waiting for, published by Idea Press Publishing. Jeff Godin's comment on this book is that it's required reading for anybody who wants to do merely do more than merely manage people. Jonathan is the former CEO and chief brand officer of EMIS, where he's led the transformation of a global coaching brand. He graduated law school in 1998 and lives in Ashland, Oregon, with his family. Though he lives in Oregon, he'll never give up on the New York Knicks. Welcome, Jonathan.
1: Hi, Bill. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: It's a pleasure. Thanks, hey, Jonathan. What was one of the early experiences you had with being an entrepreneur? Uh, well, I think there was the, the earliest one was the penny saver, which was
1: kind of our Sunday circular where I grew up. But the, the first real attempt at a business was a car wash uh, that I went into uh, with a friend of mine, you know, in the kind of early high school where we decided we, we needed to make more than the zero money we had. So we opened up a car wash in our in our driveways and
0: would hassle our neighbors until they would let us wash their cars. And what was a lesson that you looked back on from that? That maybe even plays into today about discovering your style or discovering things that work.
1: Well, I think that the uh, maybe one of the lessons was the
0: um, operating costs are
1: always higher than you think they are. And once you exhaust a few friends and family who who will are happy to give you five bucks or ten bucks, um, you know the marketing and figuring out who your business is for, uh, that becomes a challenge. And how to distinguish yourself from a from a what is always a crowded marketplace, right? Any any industry worth being in is crowded. And how do you establish that that unique voice and that brand that sets you apart from others?
0: When you studied in school, what did you study and how did it prepare you for your first job?
1: <laughs> Probably the worst possible thing to study. I was a philosophy major at undergrad, so one of the least practical uh, degrees. I went to law school after that, which kind of got me going in the right direction. It helped me learn how to you know write a professional letter and to and to show up in the world in a in a professional way more so than the law itself, which which I found interesting. The practice of law I thought what was really helpful for me was to be precise and to be thorough to keep agreements, to follow through on things, and to, uh, and to read the fine print um, so that you know what you're getting into when you make a deal with someone.
0: That's interesting. It, a lot of it was the structure of thinking like a lawyer that helped you be organized as an entrepreneur and make good agreements with people.
1: I've been blogging and, and now writing books, and, and I would say that you know, my, my education and time in law school really helped with that. It really helped me uh, write with some structure right? rather than just stream of consciousness but to actually you know put one idea after the next in a way where something builds and and a good lawyer is is really good at that i never became a good lawyer but a good lawyer is able to do that to string a series of ideas together and build an argument right which is what a good book or a good blog post is is a good argument for you know advocating a piece of change
0: and out of school what was one of your first jobs
1: my first job was three jobs uh, after i graduated i was living in a in a resort town in colorado and I had the fantasy of uh, being a ski bum and that, that I was disabused of that notion pretty fast. I had three jobs taken as a, as a whole, which were still not enough to cover my rent, but I was working in a coffee shop, making, uh, you know, cappuccinos and, and, you know, cutting pie for people and working on, on a construction site and, and driving a van for a hotel. So I was, uh, I was a bit all over the place, not a lot of sleep and, you know, those, those, Series of eight dollar an hour jobs didn't amount to enough to live uh, the life that I wanted,
0: and it's interesting to contrast today with where we start out with our first jobs because they don't define it.
1: No, they truly don't. And I think it was Andy Warhol gets the attribution, but somebody uh, with a somebody well known said at one point that you know you're on track in your life when you're using the best and the worst of of what's happened to you over the course of your journey, and I feel like that's where I am now. And and you know those were all positive experiences, right? Those were all you know, learning and growing, and it, and it set me on a course to to carve out uh, a path for myself, so, which you know took different different forms over the years. But um, that gave me the motivation to say, okay, you know, if I want to have an impact in the world, I'm going to have to take some steps, and there's going to be some some painful painful moments along the way.
0: Talk about the kinds of problems that you solve for your customers and clients today. What do they come to your for? And what are the types of challenges or problems you help them overcome and solve?
1: I think the biggest problem we we help people with is, I would say, kind of overwhelm and ambiguity. And what I mean by that is, you know, in most modern organizations, there's a lot of thought being put into how do we create a people-first culture, right? How do we engage with employees? How do we create the conditions where people feel like they're coming to work not just to create profit for owners and, and shareholders, but a sense of personal meaning and a sense of personal purpose. And that's a very difficult problem to solve. And, uh, you know, there, there have been many good ideas um, put out over the years about how you do that. Uh, but I think what we've been able to do is to offer a, a real tactical approach for how to do, in particular, feedback and accountability um, in an organization that really grounds the way people operate on a day-to-day basis. So taking the You know, we've all heard all, you know, all the good, you know, meaningful talk around values and vision and goals and OKRs and all the structural things uh, that go into creating a, a thriving, functioning organization. But what I found, and I found this personally in the organizations I was running as well as with my clients, is that that's not nearly enough, is that where organizations go sideways and where things start to degrade is in the actual conversations between managers and employees. Between managers and one another and, and very importantly between managers and senior executives in the organization. And without those conversations happening, all that other stuff gets, gets wasted to one degree or another. So that's where we live in the conversations that people are actually having on a day-to-day basis. And we have a methodology for for how to do that that, that people have been uh, receiving and, and doing some great things with.
0: Can you give me an example of how that would work? A company that comes in, do they need to bring in a group of managers in order to be effective? Because it's hard to get a sense of change unless it's the, the CEO or president who comes in first to get an idea of how the methodology works. Do you have an example of a company that came in and was able to take the tools that you provide And implement them within their company.
1: Yeah, there, you know, I think of a couple, you know, one of them I'm thinking of, you know, is a software company in the South Bay, south of San Francisco, about 300 employees. And the first opportunity that we had to work with them, uh, we worked with about 50 people managers. And at first, the CEO was not part of the program. It was, it was initially brought in as a management training program. It wasn't that he was uninterested, but he just wasn't part of that initial program. And it was part of their kind of management development initiative. And you know, kind of rethinking performance management. And what happened was really interesting because the, there's the, this big aha moment when we do, we kick off our program with an on-site seminar. You know, there's something very powerful about you know, no laptops, no phones, just a group of human beings in a room talking about the things that matter. And uh, in that in that initial seminar, there was this big aha moment, which is which is fairly common, where all of the managers in the organization realizing. How they were sort of playing a level down or two levels down from their title in the amount of rework and you know extra meetings and and approvals, minor approvals and, and the minutia of their day that wasn't unimportant, but left them with basically no room, uh, mental or or emotional room to actually do creative and, and strategic work inside the organization. The stuff that they that they came there to do, that they were really passionate about. And so that was a, that was kind of a big aha moment and we introduced, uh, you know, the accountability dial and some of the tools to help, uh, delegation and empower the more junior employees than the people in that room. And those things start to happen. And it's incremental, right? Nothing changes overnight. Nothing worth doing changes overnight. It's, it's incremental. It's day by day, conversation by conversation. We like to say one conversation at a time at Refound. And then very quickly, uh, that, uh, that movement really, the managers took it upon themselves. And they created a movement in, in, the, in internal to the organization. There was enough of them to say, "Hey, we're, we don't like the way we've been doing it, and we love this company, and, and we think we can do it better." And they started to recruit the senior executives into that program. Uh, we got to go back and, and do training with uh, with the C suite and some of the other VPs, and people became uh, you know got bought in to uh, a new way of talking about how we show up with one another at work and giving each other feedback that was inspiring. And, uh, and that's really the best part of this work for me is I get to see people, you know, take these tools and apply them in ways that I never would have thought and have conversations that are that are, that are are meaningful to them. And so that's, that's really been rewarding.
0: And I imagine it's work like this that inspired you to write about and create the book, Good Authority. What inspired you? Was it an event or a conversation that might have inspired you to take on the project of writing a book? It really came from my
1: own personal failings and I say that, you know, I don't have any, you know, shame about it. It just, it is what it is, is that I just, I just bumped up against my own capacity as a leader and realized that, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't really know. Nobody ever trained me. I've had, you know, different entrepreneurial ventures, I've worked in larger companies, and in none of those places did I get any real training in how to manage a team, how to lead a team, a group of human beings who are different than me, who have different styles, who want to get feedback in different ways, who have different dreams for their life, and I never got any training, and the the things that I've seen out there are are frankly not very good, it's very kind of cold and and formal, and so that inspired me to to take the entrepreneurial leap uh, at this point in my life and uh, and see if i could develop a methodology and and offer a training program that was that was truly human uh where people felt like they could it's not about being authentic right because being authentic well what does that mean but you know how do you show up in a way that is both professional and personal that's that's warm and kind and compassionate but also drives results and i think we're at a point in our business culture where we're ready to have this conversation and so that's, that's why I think we, we are where we are as a business and people are finding
0: us. What do you encounter as some of the resistance when not everyone will be ready to hear that message or adopt it? What are some of the resistances that you hear when there's a group of people assembled and many of them want this message to be brought into their company? And there are some that are standing there with their you know, arms crossed or shaking their head <laughs> or indicating in other nonverbal ways. This is not what I'm here for, and I just can't wait to get back to, you know, Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah. I think,
1: you know, it's interesting. The most common phenomenon that we hear, is interesting, is that people think, well, I don't know how I really – they actually say, I really want to do this. We really need to make this change, but I don't I, – I'm worried that it's not going to go well. People are going to, like, storm out of the office and leave if we start to do accountability. I never thought that that would be the objection, But like, if we start giving people this type of feedback, uh, people won't like it. We'll fall down and, you know, millennials won't, you know, this is sort of like the millennials boogeyman. Well, millennials won't, won't want that. And, and we found the exact opposite to be the case. But that's, those are the initial sort of, you know, crossed, like I said, the crossed arms and the raised eyebrows of like, well, will this really work? And I think the other piece is people have been burned before, right? Anybody who's been in a leadership position, especially in the same company for more than a couple of years, you've seen multiple, Rollouts, right? Let's say of, you know, consulting methodologies or the CEO found a new book over the summer and now everybody has to follow this new methodology. And so, you know, we've seen, we've been burned before. And so there's an initial reluctance. To, and a lot of times what we hear from people is, well, you know, we'll see if we, if we get to, if we get to continue this, right? Like we really like this approach, but will we invest in this in or, as an organization? That's when I'll know that this is real. And this to me is, this points to really the tragedy of what's happening right now in this otherwise really interesting space and time, is that we're radically overinvesting in technology to solve this problem and radically underinvesting in training. And because technology is sexy, it's cool. I yeah. love technology. I use tons of it. Uh, and, and the people management tools, there's a lot of great ones out there, but they are no substitute for training people how to talk to one another. And that's the mistake that I see organizations making over and over again is buying tools and technology to solve human problems. And it doesn't work. And then you and then you degrade morale even further because now you have a whole bunch of data about what your employees think, but your managers are not trained on how to act on that data. And so you make the problem worse, even though you had good intentions.
0: When you were doing research for the book, what was one of the things that surprised you the most as you came across the developing it for the book Good Authority?
1: The the thing that was most, I would say, is, is how hard it is and this is for me myself included, how hard it is to step into a feedback conversation when you don't know what the outcome is going to be. I would say that there's a psychological challenge or if there's a reason why we tend to avoid giving, I wouldn't necessarily call it direct feedback because direct feedback, that's something we could talk more about. Not always the best track, honestly. The honest feedback, yes, but direct in the way most people think about it, not always the best track. But the hesitancy that we feel when we see behavior, when we see someone showing up with less than their best or dysfunction on a team, it's very difficult to step into that moment uh, because we don't know what the outcome is. And so I would say the unifying theme as I was kind of researching and, and hearing people's stories was this, this kind of unified theme around the, this uncertainty, right? It's very difficult to, to do. We're, we're so trained when we're in leadership and management positions that our job is to have the answers, And to, and to move things forward. And so to be able to embrace a a communication methodology that says, actually, you know what? Uncertainty is your best friend. Not knowing how this conversation is going to go. That's how you know that you're on track to a real conversation. A lot of times what I will say to, you know, to our trainees and, and my coaching clients is to say, look, if your feedback contains a solution, it's not feedback. It's micromanagement. And to be able to learn how to give feedback that doesn't have a solution. A prescriptive thing that says, okay, here's what you need to do next. That's the real challenge.
0: And I think that you're saying that you don't want to have the solution at the beginning of the conversation, but you could certainly end with a solution.
1: Right. Well, the thing is, is that, you know, when, when somebody, all we have to do as managers and leaders, if we think back to uh, people who, who we've had as bosses, is that when they when when we get a solution, when we get a, here's what you should do next, quite disempowering, right? It's really difficult to find your own voice inside of an organization if you're always being told, even if it's kindly, right? If you're always being told what to do, you don't really get to question assumptions and to really challenge yourself because there's already been a, a restricted frame put on you as an employee. And so that's, you know, we're, we try to hold off, from offering the solution as
0: long as possible. So I imagine that a, a manager is listening to this conversation now that you and I are having and saying, man, you are right. That is scary stuff to step into a conversation without knowing the answer. What, what are a couple tips you could offer a manager who's thinking to themselves, how the heck do you begin doing this and not making it worse? Because a lot of managers want to come in and be constructive, but they will avoid conversations if they're, like you said earlier, uncertain about the outcome.
1: Use your friends.
0: If you have an organization and you'd like to have us come in and work with you, we would love to do that. Uh, you know,
1: we're, we, we like to make money in our business, but there are some things you can do on your own that are absolutely free, which is go down the hall or call up a colleague and say, hey, I want to talk with Doug about this thing, and I'm not sure how this conversation is going to go. Can I try it out on you first? Sure, no problem. There are very few things we can do that will give us more value than not going into feedback situations cold, right? Because we get to say it out loud. You, you know, you can do it in front of a mirror if you want, but do it with a friend, do it with a colleague, do it with, a, you know, do it with your spouse or your partner and say it and then hear yourself say it. And then you'll automatically go, you know, actually I think what I really want to say is X or I think I could have said this differently. You can get a lot of the way there. Uh, and again, you know, there's many skills and, and, and tools and there's inner work to do here, but that's the first thing that I would say to kind of de- the anxiety, the situation is talk it out with someone else first.
0: I think the other side of this might be people saying, well, if you want us to talk human with each other, when are you against accountability? Are you someone who really doesn't want to see managers holding people to higher standards? What do you have to say when people would, would ask you about accountability?
1: You know, accountability is, is really my sort of pet project. And I think that the biggest thing that we have to do is we have to reframe what we think of when we say accountability, right? We can use the word, but if we don't understand the meaning behind the word, we, we're on the wrong track. So when we think about accountability, most of us, everyone that I've ever worked with, has some very negative connotations with the word, whether that was from a, an early experience with a difficult boss or a parent or some other figure of authority, a teacher in our life. We all carry baggage around authority. And so uh, accountability and, and authority, how people in authority have showed up and, quote, unquote, held us accountable. So we need to do a piece of work there, and that's a lot of what we do with organizations. That's the leadership piece of, hey, what's it, what am I carrying around relative to this word? Because accountability, right, all it means is responsibility for one's actions, right, and, and not passing the buck, right? I'm accountable for this. But what happens is we use the word, and I have this conversation, it's, it's, it's one of the more sort of comical conversations that I have often, is people, people all the time will say, well, we, well, accountability is big for us. We, we're always talking about accountability. It's a core value in our organization. And so I'll say, okay, well, what are the, give me something that people are supposed to be accountable for? And they'll give me an example and say, okay, well, what are the consequences for not doing that, you know, two times or three times? Well, what do you mean consequences? <laughs> right. And so it's like, well, if without if there are no consequences, you're not, that's not accountability. That's you could call it aspiration, right? You could call it a, a wish, but it's not an accountability, right? Unless there are consequences for not engaging in the action, right? Then there's not accountability. And so that's a that's a big mindset shift. But the other important one is this: accountability. If you think about all the other aspects of life, whether it comes to a fitness goal or quitting smoking or working on your relationship accountability is a gift. It is a gift when someone in our life who cares about us says, hey, here's this thing, and I know you've been working on this, but, you know, it hasn't been changing fast enough. Let's work on that. That's a gift when we have somebody in our life, but we haven't yet made the bridge to accountability in the workplace. That when a manager sees somebody engaging in less than optimal behavior, as long as they say it in a compassionate way, they can say it directly, but in a compassionate way, in a supportive way that they Personally care about that person growing. Accountability is a gift. It's not a punishment. And so there's, there are a couple of layers to this onion, uh, in order to do this well in an organization. So the first is a mindset shift, but the other is to break up that conversation. And that's the purpose of the accountability dial, which is the, the core tool in the book. So that when you're quote unquote doing accountability, the goal is not, I don't want to be in a position where I'm holding people accountable. I want to be in a position where I'm giving people data and information about how they're showing up in as objective a way as I possibly can. It's always going to be subjective, but as objectively as I can so that they hold themselves accountable. I don't want to be anyone's accountability master, right? That's not a good place to find yourself as a manager and a leader. So accountability, yes, but the key is communication where people say, you know what? I'm holding myself accountable for this, and you, Mr. or Mrs. Manager, I want your help, right? I want you to help me. While I'm in this project of holding myself accountable for getting better at managing my time, or taking more creative risks, or not taking so many creative risks, whatever the thing is that I want to work on, I want your help. We haven't yet made the
0: shift to that in the workplace, and that's what Refound is all about. And that becomes the culture of accountability that you talk about in the book. Um, What are a couple of the other important dimensions of having a culture of accountability at work? The the main, you know, one of the main skills is managers
1: being able to to name what it is they're seeing and feeling in a non-energized way, right? So we're typically, we act out our emotions, we go through our day, we're not very mindful as a species, right? We all, we tend to be kind of reactive, even those of us who've done a lot of practice on this, it's very, very difficult. And so one of the other pieces that's really important there is to be able to name what you're feeling early in the process, right? So rather than watching somebody show up late for meetings for three weeks in a row, to be able to say, hey, you know, I'm getting a little worried, right? You know, it's not the end of the world, but, you know, I'm getting, or I have this concern and I want to talk with you about it, right? That's naming what we feel without acting it out. We're not managing around them. We're not going to HR. We're not, you know, whining to, about them to our colleagues or our friends or our spouses. We're finding a way, right? We're just finding a way to name what we feel with the people and we see with the people around us in our day-to-day. That's another key component there to creating that culture of accountability, because if you don't give people data early in the process, it's not fair to, to engage in accountability because we can't change behavior if we don't know what the behavior is in specific ways.
0: Right. So that goes to the point of it not being a punishment when somebody gets a decision that's punitive because they never got data. They never had a chance to be accountable because the, the management and the culture failed them. Exactly.
1: And that's the thing that you know people will say, well, I don't, I don't know if this person will is, is, you know, is the right fit here or or whatever they want to say about that. And the answer is you don't know. You don't know, and people will surprise you. And this has happened to me over and over again as I coach leaders. The people, if you take any team of 10 people and you think, well, if we really do accountability well, these five people will make it and these five people won't, you're going to be wrong in more than one case, I promise you. I've never seen it not be the case. And people will surprise you. It's oftentimes that's what we need. We need boundaries. We need structure for what does excellent work look like and until we do that, we can't fairly assess somebody's potential.
0: When People say that boundaries and structure are great, but we need people to give more of themselves. How do you talk about this paradox so that they can understand that within boundaries and structure, you're actually enabling people? To give more of themselves and make greater contributions because they know where the guidelines are, where the, you know what the rules of the road are. If
1: I can do a really cheesy movie uh, music quote, you know,
0: like uh, Janis Joplin said,
1: "Freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose," <laughs> right? Like, if, if if you get to do whatever you want, whenever you want it. With, you know, with no consequences and no structure, well, you're not really helping your teammates, right? You're not really helping the organization in any in any directed, vision-oriented way. It's that combination, right? I had a boss once who said, you know, it's that combination of structure and substance, right? It's like a good sales conversation, right? A good sales conversation has structure, right? It has a flow. You have pieces that you want to cover, but it also has substance, right? It's how you show up and how you relate and how you listen. It's those intangibles. So you need both. And a culture of accountability has both. It has structure, but, it's a, but if all it has structure, if only it has structure, then it's just rules, right? But if all you have is, is good talk, right? Hey, we have, we, you know, we value accountability, but no structure. Well, you're sunk on the other side of the on the other side of the coin. So you've got to have both, and that's what a good HR director, a good people manager, uh, you know, someone who's responsible for the culture. You know, that's what the that's the task. In the modern workplace, and I think that the HR serves, you know, a lot of our initial point of contact with organizations is that the VP of HR or the chief HR officer or chief people officer. And that's, I think, a really interesting place to be in the modern organization because you have these dual realities these, that you have to serve to drive results and create performance and to create a meaningful place to work. Uh, and the, and the person tasked with that has a, like we said, is a multi-layered problem. But if you think about it as, am I doing too much structure, not enough substance? Am I doing too much substance, not enough structure? That's a good orientation to start thinking your way through the problem.
0: Are there any companies that you're aware of in the news or through your own consulting work and training work that are doing a very good job and are exemplars of being able to have these conversations, of giving people early feedback of not fearing accountability, but more embracing it as a gift, like you said.
1: I would say, you know, there's some inter- there are some, some very interesting public stories on the on the negative side these days. But I think that there's a, and maybe we could come back to, you know, talk about what's happening with Google right now. I think it's an interesting example. With, you know, obviously I'm a big fan of our clients. I think they're doing great work. You know, I've got, a, you know, a few clients in Austin and in the Bay Area and in Seattle and some other places. One in Boston in particular that I'm thinking of. And I would say what, what unifies the organizations that are doing this well is participation from executives uh, in a very specific way. So what I mean by that is when accountability and this, and this culture of personal ownership, it's not all, it doesn't all come down to the CEO. That is a big point that I try to make in the book is that putting it all on the CEO isn't fair, isn't realistic, and, and isn't effective. right? But the CEO has a role to play and the other senior executives. And so the organizations where where we're seeing this work is executives and managers coming forward, and, and the unifying thing is taking ownership of the way that it has been in the past up to this point. We're very good at making big pronouncements about how it's going to be in the future. It's far more effective, more meaningful, more vulnerable, and more transparent. All those things that we say we're we're trying to do to say, you know what, here's where we are. And part of the reason why we are where we are is because some of the choices that I've made in the past. And that's on me. That's not on you guys. So while we're introducing this new methodology for how we're doing accountability and how we're doing feedback, just know, I know that we didn't get here in a vacuum. We got here because some of the choices that that I made and others in the senior leadership made as well. and, and, And we never lose sight of that fact. While we're asking you guys to change and make some changes, we're not
0: exempt from that project. That's what's unifying the organizations that are doing this well. I can imagine that really helping people who are reporting to those managers and members of teams saying, well, thank goodness, someone's taking responsibility for it, because if you don't talk about it, you can't really be expected that you're owning
1: it. What we forget as leaders and managers, or it's very hard to keep in mind, is that you actually have a lot more latitude, a lot more leeway with the people in your organization than you think. You don't have to fix what's wrong with the organization this afternoon. You have to own that there are problems and that you know that there are problems and be transparent about that. If you do that, you will see everybody in the organization exhale. If you are honest with the state of affairs in the organization, everyone will go, okay, all right, I get it. But like, he or she gets it and understands that this is real for us, that we're, we are suffering and struggling every day because of these dynamics. And they will give you time to work on them and fix them. The frustration comes from when management and leadership
0: tries to whitewash it, right, and pretend that it, is, that it isn't there. Google CEO Sudnar Pichai was criticized for the James Damore letter talking about the biological differences that prevent gender inequality to be prevalent at Google. Tell me what your take is on that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was I think it's really interesting what's happening right now. And, and, and we can't, and I don't think we should, I guess, uh, well, maybe we should, uh, divorce, you know, what's happening in business from politics, right? You see, you know, you saw Intel and Merck and CEOs from major corporations saying, look, like, I'm not, I'm not, this is not what I signed on for, right? And I think it's interesting. You know, a lot of my clients are in Silicon Valley and, and, you know, say what you will, oftentimes there's a lot of trends that come out of Silicon Valley. And I think it's interesting that organizations have put themselves, found themselves in this position of having to apologize, right, for holding people accountable for being jerks, right? And it's like, look, you know, the, the, there are not two sides to every issue. And as an organization, you know, people people need to remember the First Amendment. You don't have First Amendment rights in a corporation. The First Amendment protects you from government interference with speech, not private interference. So if Google wants to create a way of being in the world. They are allowed to, to restrict speech, right? They're a private corporation. There are no rules or or even moral obligations to not do that. And so I I I, I find it troubling when organizations are apologizing in this in, in I think in a kind of a reverse PC way of saying, look, these are not views. These views are not okay at Google. Sorry, you don't get to be a misogynist at Google, or you don't get to you don't get to advocate. That's not a neutral point of view that we're going to debate. Sorry, you got to go. Right, like, I don't, I don't want to apologize for that as an organization, and I don't think they should either. What would you recommend?
0: Because you're also getting uh, quite a lot of negative feedback and reaction from people who think that they came out with the right decision. Many people think they came out with the right decision, but they handled it very poorly.
1: Yes, I agree.
0: They handled it poorly. I wish they would have hired me. Uh, we could have
1: communicated it differently because they, they, the problem is, is, is the half measure, right? Instead of taking a position yeah. and saying, instead of saying, look, this is what we think. This is what we stand for. Some people may not like it, but this is who we are right? Like people will respect that. But it's when we try to play both sides and that's what they did in those in those communications. I think they they had the right feeling inside, but they didn't know how to articulate it. And I think that's what uh you know what I'm seeing a lot of organizations struggle with. And like we talked about with feedback before, like there are cycles, there's communication, and there there are resources that are available. I think that's that's what, that's what I would say about it. So and I think for example Uber has an unbelievable opportunity to clean up their act and do so in a transparent way that's not marketing, right? It's not you know, to show everybody how we're doing accountability now, but to actually change the way the culture is operating. It could be a shining example if they were transparent in the right way, and I just wonder if they will do it in the right way or if they will do it in a kind of marketing, you know, I don't, there's some really smart, good people there in addition to the things that we hear. And I hope they do that right. You know, of course, the devil's in the details as always.
0: When you say do it in the right way with transparency and not make it a marketing ploy, what would be one or two signals that you'd look for to see that they were on the right track with that?
1: Uh, don't, don't make TV commercials about it.
0: Uh, you know, don't boast about what you're going to do.
1: Let action speak for themselves, right? Don't market your culture change project. Make some changes and then the same people who were griping about the reasonably griping about the way it was, let them write some blog posts about, hey, you know what guys, things are really changing here. And I've, and I've been the first to criticize our culture in the past and there's some interesting things happening. Let them be your ambassadors. Don't, don't try to do the corporate hey everything's good now right we've we've changed our ways and we have these new pre- everybody knows that's bs so just don't do it give it be patient people are watching your employees are the first people to advocate for change when they see real change
0: happen trust that they will do that Jonathan, how do you stay on top of the current trends and examples of companies? Are there your favorite blogs, books, thought leaders who you follow?
1: I'm blessed by having people who like, forward me things a lot. Uh, and so it, it comes from a wide range of sources, you know, podcasts like this one, you know interesting episodes you know some you know webinars articles some of the curated newsletters out there you know i think first round capital is a really great curated newsletter that they that they do you know there there is a bunch of ones and i you know the challenge these days is to Keep too many things from from your inbox so I, I am pretty merciless in unsubscribing from lists and things like that you know that I would say it's kind of a mishmash of things that I that I hear and and books that I read in the space and I also try to read things that have nothing to do with business or leadership or management and and go for walks that's that's where I' where find uh, some of my most creative moments
0: and in order to stay on top of things in order to manage many projects developing online courses consulting with companies you must have Uh, favorite tools or methodologies that you use to be more productive. What are some of the, the tips and tricks and tools that you like to use to help you stay on track?
1: Uh, we use Asana internally, which I like. It's a project management, uh, task management tool that I think is pretty intuitive. I like that tool a lot. I, I, you know, I think there are no perfect answers for video conferencing, but we use Zoom. Uh, I know they're pretty hot these days. We, you know, been very happy with that as a kind of nice kind of meeting and webinar tool. I'm trying to think. You know, there's a bunch. I like Zapier a lot for connecting, you know, kind of disparate apps. It's a really neat tool. Uh, we do use Slack, although we you know, we try to be mindful about it, try to keep conversations and then you know the way we do it, and this may be too sort of micro, but we use Google Drive for docs that we're working on and Dropbox for docs that were finished, right? So when it's a finished product, if it's a proposal or you know some other asset, we will we will put it in Dropbox so we don't so that stays really organized.
0: And then Google Drive can be a bit of a mess and we don't try to clean it up. Well you've been really generous with sharing with us today on my quest for best And I'd love to thank you for the insights that you share, the examples and the stories, and the encouragement to, you know, to become the kind of boss or the leader that your team is waiting for. Jonathan, people want to find out more about your book and your company. Where are a couple places where they should look? You can find us at refound.com. That's, uh, R-E-F, like Frank, uh, or, or like
1: rebound uh, with an F. refound.com and refound.com has a bunch of resources, meeting guides and, and some other tools and, and planners that you can use if you want to introduce some of these feedback and one-on-one tools into your organization and some videos there. The book is available everywhere. Amazon, of course, if you're, if you're looking for a bulk buy, you can do that on CEO Read or you can contact us directly at hello at refound.com. Uh, with that or any other questions. So I would say those would be the best things. Um, I always, lo- I'm always open to hearing, uh, personal emails. Uh, if something in the episode, uh, interested you or you want to hear more, you can always send an email to hello at com, and that email will make
0: its way to me and, and you will get a personal response. Thank you again so much for joining me on my quest for the best.